Hello, this is Scott Sehan, and welcome to Comfort Zone Exit, the podcast where, through casual conversations, I explore the inspiration and motivations of interesting people that I've met throughout my life. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast and the guests that I've featured, you can do so at comfortzoneexit.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Comfort Zone Exit. And if you enjoy this episode or any past episodes, I encourage you to give it a like on iTunes. Now on to episode 14, where I'm joined by former classmate at the University of Florida Business School, Jason McRae. This is Scott Sehan. Welcome to Comfort Zone Exit Episode 14. I'm happy to be joined by a former classmate of mine at University of Florida Business School, uh, Jason McRae. Jason is talking to me all the way from Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan uh, today. So, Jason, how are you, my friend? Doing wonderful, Scott. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking time out of, I know, what's a very busy schedule uh, to chat with me. I am excited to hear your, uh, your story and your path uh, that has led you from being a, uh, a business executive in, here in the U.S. and a banker uh, to being in, in uh, grad school and now ultimately, um, as you explained to me earlier, you are the officer in charge of DLA Disposition Services at Bagram uh, air base in Afghanistan, uh, with the title of Lieutenant, uh, junior grade in the U S Navy. Um, I hope I got all of that correct. <laughs> you did. You got it right. Well done. <laughs> Great. So, um, so you're now in the Navy. Talk to me a little bit and talk to us a little bit about what your, uh, background, your professional experience was, uh, prior to joining, uh, joining the Navy and then I'll want to hear about what your motivations and inspirations were for uh, for getting uh, into uh, into the military. So before I joined the Navy, or if we go back before sort of you and I met, I had spent about um, ten years in and out of uh, in financial services, working primarily in the mortgage industry and the servicing side of the business. Uh, companies like Bank One, J.P. Morgan Chase, Washington Mutual. Um, Started business school near the end there after Washington Mutual ran into some troubles, uh, finished the MBA, um, and then ended up working for Deutsche Bank shortly after that and uh, doing investment banking and project management for them. So um, pretty heavily slanted towards change management, project management as a personal path, um, and almost entirely, I think with, uh, yeah, I would say almost entirely in financial services, um, banking, whatnot. wasn't you're a traditional banker, you're not there wheeling and dealing. I typically did uh, change management, project management, that sort of thing. Okay. So you you were in banking for uh, between 10 and 15 years. So when did you join uh, join the Navy, and what um, what were your motivations and inspirations for doing that? I know that you're a father, you have two children uh, in a family, so... Uh, making making that change and that commitment is uh, is a pretty pretty intense uh, change of path in one's life. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things that came up is I, 
and it actually came up when I was going through the process of uh, joining the United States Navy was it was like what do you what do you think one of the questions I got in the interview portion so I came in as an officer was what what are you going to bring to the Navy and I, I was talking to a couple of senior officers during that interview and I hadn't really ever thought of it this way but for most of my career I had a second job or something else to do so early on in my career I, I was a bartender um Fridays and Saturday nights for I think close to five years and then after we relocated to Florida I uh, started the MBA, and as you know, that was like the better part of two years, right? So there was just always something. Um, well, after I moved to Florida, I had my first child, so as you know, um, that's its own separate job. Yeah, and, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I've always had some other thing cooking. Um, and actually, so that we're, we're sort of on the same page, I joined the Navy Reserve um, as an officer, so I'm interrupting my professional life to be a full-time naval officer um, on active duty uh, over the time that I'm in Afghanistan. So I kind of get to have the best of both worlds is the way I look at it. Um, The decision is still um, equally disruptive, right? So when I sat down in that same interview, the officers I met with said, just so you know, when you get done with your basic qualification stuff as as a Navy officer, uh, you're going to get deployed. Um, at that time, both Iraq and Afghanistan were going full steam, um, and you know, sort of their words held me right, and here I am. Um, so that, that was sort of getting up to that point. So I've always carried that extra piece of work. So I, I still have my um, full-time job uh, before I left uh, with Deutsche Bank as a project manager for them. And uh, ideally, when I get back, I'll, I'll return to that and continue on in my career in the Navy. Um, the way that reserve officers talk about it is typically your hierarchy is sort of family, your primary job in the Navy, and then periodically the Navy takes over everything. Right. Um, and that's sort of the state that I'm in now. So the decision, the process that you go through that is really still the same um, as if you were going to join as a 17 or 18-year-old kid headed into the Navy or a couple of years later, if you're going to uh, attempt to be uh, an officer in the Navy or any of the other branches, now you have to go through applications and interviews and physical tests and all that stuff. So, um, not very different on the front end. Just the back end of it is a little bit different. Right. So, um, so what were what were some of the training uh, training exercises like, and, and how long was that training process in order to uh, in order to get you? I guess physically, uh, physically ready. If uh, I'm sure there was plenty of physical training, but then also in terms of the officer training, what was that process like before? And how long did it take before they before you were deployed? So I was in the Navy Reserve as a, an officer for about two and a half years. Does that come out right? No. So uh, let's see if I finish. I have to think through this because it's uh, all kind of a blur. To be no, honest, no, it's with fine. You. I know we. I know we finished business school in May of 2010. So, and on so, and on your LinkedIn, I think it has you joining the Navy Reserves in November of 2010. So that is exactly right. So okay, so we're we'll be coming up on what four years? Yeah. In November. Yeah. So um, I think the first thing that we have to do as reservists is you have to go through uh, an officer school. Um, the, as a reservist coming in, because I had a master's degree, they give you sort of what I'll call credit for life experience. So I don't have to go through the 
traditional OCS class. There's uh, an abbreviated version that they have for people coming in. They're called direct commission officers like I did. Um, it, it's intense, but it's not very long. Um, the, I think the traditional OCS that you sort of see infamous um, from various movies and other things is, I think, four to six months, and ours is just a couple of weeks. So the, the thing is reservists that they obligate you to is you've got at least a couple weeks a year of active duty time you have to do, and then you have your, your one weekend a month, sort of the famous bit. Um, as an officer, it's never that easy. Right. There's always more to do, um, but that's the, the paid portion of it. Um, you asked before sort of motivational why I did it all. Yeah, I think ab- yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I know you said you, you always like to have something else going on. I mean, you were a bartender at one time in business school, so, uh, you know, why, why not uh, why not go back to bartending or volunteer at the local library or something like that? What, why, why the military? You know, I, I, I think if you look back at our, the folks in our class, there are some really exceptional individuals in there, and a number of them were Navy officers. Yes. Um, I got to be very good friends with one of them, um, Zach LaPointe, who's a, a P3 pilot um, and actually who I just ran back into because he's stationed back in Jacksonville. Um, and, and there was that little sort of like these are very put-together young men who have been challenged a lot in their lives, done some interesting things already, but still just as a group, very impressive. Um, I had other people who lived in my neighborhood in Jacksonville um, based on the proximity to Naval Air Station Jacksonville. Um, other officers who are equally impressive, if you will. Uh, I'm the fourth generation uh, to serve in the United States military, so there's that. Um, then <clears throat> sort of on the, I don't know, like the family or the selfish side, because of where I was at career-wise, um, we seen things sort of stagnate in the mortgage business, and I was looking for other things that I could do for the family in the long run. You know, you look at things like what well, I had uh, when my daughter would have been four, two or three, somewhere in that range, we're in in class. And so I had that uh, father thing of I got to take care of my family and what can I do? And if you finish 20 good years in the Navy Reserve, you get a proportional retirement um, along with the health care. And that's a a thing that has a dollar value that way exceeds sort of actually what it delivers, right? So if you look at present day and retirements and health care, something like that is it's, it's fairly substantial. Additionally, there's things um, like the post and GI Bill and lots of other financial incentives in there that um, have a ton of value for, for somebody who doesn't intend to go back to college, right? So by doing the deployment I'm on now, I think I get 50% of the post-9-11 GI Bill, and I can give that to my kids, and that's huge. I think that works out to like a year of school for each one of them. Um, and I'm only four years in, so odds are I'll probably do this again. Um, the other thing that, that really, and this is something I kind of woke up to the other day that just looking at why, why I decided to add something else to my life that was a substantial and this disruptive was I really wanted the opportunity to, to lead people. Um, and the military gives anybody who's got the right chops, who's willing to put the time in can get that chance. Even if you come in as a, an enlisted person, um, if you work hard and you do good, you'll get a chance to be a, a sort of what they call an NCO or non-commissioned officer, uh, like an army, the famous army sergeant um, in the Navy, they're petty officers. You can get put in a leading leadership position, and that was something I was missing career-wise. Um, sort of ironically or 
maybe just because of where I was in life, I ended up getting that anyways professionally around the same time. Um, but it's been great. Like I, it's the most humbling thing I have to do is a chance to lead uh, soldiers, sailors, and airmen, and it's been as rewarding as I thought it would be. So, really yeah, so, uh, so t- tell us a little bit about your uh, your exact duties and what your uh, what capacity you're serving in specifically now in uh, in Afghanistan. Sure. So I got uh, lucky enough to get selected to be um, the officer in charge. So it's it's there's a, there's two things. So rank has a, a certain level of authority that goes with it. So as you go up, climb up the, the ladder as an officer and enlisted, you get you know, sort of um, referential authority, if you will. On the other side of that, there's positional authority um, where you could be a, a, a commanding officer where you run a whole thing. Um, and a, as a junior officer, the officer in charge role is one of the ones where you get a lot of that same responsibility as a commanding officer. Your rank doesn't necessarily put you in that position. So I run around here with Lots of um, 03s, 04s, 05s, and 8s and 6s. So these would be um, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, and whatnot. But my positional authority puts me in the room in a a fairly similar spot because um, I have leadership over and accountability for all of these teams in various places, um, taking care of things of like planning when we're going to get out of certain bases for DLA's perspective, and all the mechanics of managing people and process and handling issues that come up and all the stuff that goes with it. Uh, so, uh, let's see how my, my normal day typically involves things like it's a, it's a, taking a step back. It's a, it's a managerial role. So I look at staffing. Um, we, most of the people here serve either six month or year long tours. So that is a constant moving target because not everybody gets here together. Okay. Um, so for so for example, I have an extremely talented young man who's finishing up his tour who leaves uh, in just a few days. So I had to early on sort of find out what he did, how he got so good at it, uh, and then push him to cross-train people and, and continue down that path. I have uh, my number two here in Bagram. So he leaves in about three weeks, um, as well as at other sites. We've had a couple people leaving here or there, so we deal with the pipeline of bringing people in from the States to getting them trained up, to getting them here and then finding a spot for them where they fit, whether it's a, we have what's called a, a expeditionary disposal remediation uh, specialist or technical specialist, ADRT. Um, and they, they're the, the worker bees, if you will. And I manage that team. It's either it, is what we call them. So it's, they're an expeditionary person. Um, I may send you an email with a better description of uh, all the stuff you have in handy. But that's where I lead a team of, like I said, about 20 of those folks. Um, There are one, two, three other officers doing what I do across the theater. Um, I think I have the largest number of bases, um, but it's all that accountability. So if, for example, one of them did something they weren't supposed to, um, that's on me. I have to figure it out, fix it, report it, and then typically hear about it. If yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> um, so, are you dealing with uh, with other reservists, or is it a mixture and a combination of folks who are reservists and people who are, I mean, completely full time? In my team, um, I think everybody is either reserve or national guard. 
I'm trying to think if there's anybody active duty. I don't believe so. Now, what's interesting about what we do is we also work with a great number of uh, DOD civilians. So I have effectively a, a, a person who's my proxy from a civilian standpoint um, who's a uh, DOD civilian for DLA Disposition Services, who's the site chief of Bagram. So she runs the whole site. I manage the military person, a portion of it, but um, accountability-wise, we have a lot of the same same pieces. So it's a sort of a, a side-by-side role. Um, we each have the things that we're responsible for. My team helps make sure that her operation runs, and then I also have uh, a little bit broader authority and responsibility than, yeah. than she does. So there's that. Yep. So, if you're dealing, lar- I guess, largely with uh, reservists who you're uh, who you're overseeing, then um, you have people uh, with you who have either similar similar stories, who maybe have gone through similar processes uh, that, that you have, and they're oh, yeah. they're there for maybe just six months or a year, and they have families at home, and, oh, and yeah, they have full time jobs, like and they're they're mm-hmm. business professionals just like you. Yeah, I have a, a gentleman who's a police officer in um, in Utah. Uh, another one is a police officer in Puerto Rico, uh, a, a young lady who is a teacher in Oregon. So it's a mix of about everything you could think of. Uh, one of the young men is a, a chef back home. So it's just uh, that's one of the neat things that the reserves have that sort of the active duty counterpart doesn't have is you have these people who bring just a myriad of life experience. Um, you know, in the officer side, we've got uh, folks who do accounting and financial analysis for the government. Uh, a couple, one guy who's a, a store manager for, I think he does, uh, uh, for Verizon Wireless. It's just, you know, all kinds of really neat, neat backgrounds. Now, in Bagram, of course, there's thousands of active duty soldiers uh, and airmen and a handful of sailors um, that do all uh, the fun stuff like fly jet planes and drive armored vehicles and go on patrols and all that. But right. my team is, is primarily reservist. So. And it's, it's, you, um, so are you tied almost entirely to that one base or that location, or are you being sent out into, uh, you know, into the theater and into the field to be running operations and missions? So I do go out. Um, for example, later today I'll be flying to another location. Um, I can tell you after, but not. Uh, during just for security's sake but um we so i have as i mentioned before i run three sites so there's they're all in um what are known as rc north rc capital rc east um so they vary in size once a camp which just means it's it's sort of in greater Kabul, uh, called camp phoenix and then there's a ford operating base fenty uh, which is named after i believe uh, an air force officer um who passed away and uh and then camp john pratt which is in the north which i have not been able to make it to it's in uh, the city's uh, mazari sharif so uh, of the city so uh, camp phoenix is just outside of Kabul. uh ford operating base fenty or fob fenty is in jalalabad and then uh, camp john pratt is in mazari sharif in the north um i have not been able to make it to that one traveling in afghanistan is its own separate thing um mountains and weather and it's not sort of first world travel oriented so you just have lots of challenges with it so sometimes you can get on your way somewhere and they turn around because they can't see where they're going um, and that's all fine that's much safer than flying into a mountain um, 
So, yeah, uh, travel is part of my job. One of the things that's neat about what I get to do is I have teams in different locations. Um, we're fortunate that we do have things like email and um, cell phones that kind of work. So we're readily, you know, accessibility-wise, we can usually communicate pretty easily. Um, but it's a uh, the teams do pretty dynamic work on a regular basis, um, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, so I'm I'm out and about. Um, typically, every other week or every two weeks, I'm I'm gone for anywhere from three to five days. From, and are from, you traveling? I know you mentioned you know you are flying at times, but are you traveling overland as well? No, typically we're not. We should not have to travel in a convoy. Um, there's a lot more risk that goes with that, obviously. Sure. Um, so if we are able to, the preference is that we fly through either rotary, so helicopters, or fixed wing, so your traditional airplanes. Um, it is possible that as things wind down here in Afghanistan, that'll change. You know, personally and selfishly, and for my team's safety, um, I prefer to stick to the helicopters and uh, the airplanes, but. Um, Things are changing here, so it is possible, but not not entirely likely. For the most part, you can get everywhere by helicopter. You know, if it's a long distance, Afghanistan is about the same size as Texas, so okay. um, you can your long runs can typically be done by a you know a twenty seat uh, plane, or sometimes they do C one thirties that fly back and forth, and then your shorter hops are helicopters, where the there's not a runway per se, just a landing um, spot. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that when you were in the interview process uh, with the Navy that uh, that they mentioned that that you would be deployed. Now that was that was before you committed, correct, or was that after you had committed that that you had found that out, or that, that's kind of beforehand? <laughs> it was beforehand. Yep, that was in the interview application process. I think I'll call it. So they, the from a reserve side, really in the Navy, they do they have selection boards. So. I basically fill out what would be a think of it just like a job application. Um, yeah. Did a couple interviews with some senior officers, and then it goes before a board where they look at things like your resume, letters of recommendation, the results of that interview, and then they select um, based on what they perceive their need to be going forward over time uh, a set of um, candidates, if you will, or selectees, and then commission those folks. And, yeah. The rest is history, if you will. Yeah, I, I was curious about knowing ahead of time that you were going to be deployed and how that uh, factored into your decision to, to move forward. And yeah, we – my wife and I talked about it a lot. Um, it was a big consideration. It didn't make the process any easier, uh, to be honest with you. It was still really hard to leave your family and go into a war zone, but it – we, we kind of knew about it. Um, I was fortunate in that I had a, a good friend who did this same job and the same tour roughly a year before. So while different, um, I got to hear about some of the conditions and challenges and things like that and, you know, chatted with him while he was over here. You know, he made it through safely, so there's, you know, at least precedence for that. <laughs> Yeah, so so how um, how has your your family, both obviously your uh, your immediate family, your wife and your children, how how was that process? Not only of when you were in Jacksonville and having to get trained and ready, and then ultimately leave, and uh, how have they how supportive have they been? And then obviously your extended family and friends. Uh, I can't imagine it's been easy to be away, but but you know, just talk to us a little bit about that. Sure, um, you know. The hardest thing I had to do is to say goodbye at the airport. That was 
that was, I don't want to do that again if I can help it. Um, you know, life may well require it, but it was not easy, especially with, with little children. So my son is, you know, not, he'll be two when I get back in October. So going backwards, he was what a year and a half. Um, so you just worry about what you're going to miss and little things like that as a parent. Uh, my daughter turned seven while I was away. That wasn't very pleasant either. Um, you know, being away and, you know, my, we, we relocated from Wisconsin to Florida prior to our, to when you and I met each other for NBA. And that took basically my wife and I away from all our immediate family. So my family lives in Wisconsin. Hers lives in Southern Illinois. So we're kind of our own, uh, satellite family unit and very dependent on each other. So it meant that this was going to be one of those things that was a challenge. Um, we knew about it. We tried to plan for it. So I did things like uh, I recorded uh, DVDs of me reading books for the kids. Um, so each one had their own DVD. Well, I've said that seems to help. But, yeah. you know, once after the being away part passed a little bit, so after some time passed, because um, I went through two different training stops and then came over here. So I was gone for let's see, one, two, three, about a month before I headed to Afghanistan. Um, and so we had some time where I was sort of available and I could talk on a cell phone and then hopped over here. Um, so now it's limited to where I've got internet access, which has been pretty good um, when I'm at my main base. And, um, you know, communicate with email and FaceTime and Skype and things like that to stay in touch. Um, certainly talk to my wife and kids more often than I speak with my parents or whatever, but, you know, able to use things like Facebook and email and um, I can still do the, the texting on uh, uh, an Apple device to, you know, use the iCloud through the internet um, or iMessage, whatever it is, yeah. and, and, and chat that way. So different than, you know, experience of people who were in other wars or even early on in this one where connectivity is pretty good. So we're really fortunate to be able to stay in touch. I think that helps them. But, you know, one of the things I've talked to other reservists that happens is typically when you leave, something goes wrong at home, like something breaks or um, an unexpected bill comes up. And it's just almost always like that. I got here and I think um, we had a plumbing thing and our dishwasher started making a bunch of noise and something else broke. My wife was like, every time you go, something happened. Uh. <laughs> so it's always, it's always something like that. Now, you know, fortunately um, she was, you know, it had happened when I went on prior training events where I was gone for a couple of weeks, but it, we have a, it's a pretty consistent track record of whenever I leave and are invariably both kids will get sick at this time, which is okay with two parents, right? Hard enough. Yeah. But if you're, if you're running that solo, that's a, uh, because you know what's going to happen after that, right? You're going to get sick. Yeah. So well, invariably, the, uh, that happens. I guess what on the bright side, the, uh, the the Wisconsin Badgers made the Final Four, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> were you gone for that? <laughs> yes, I've missed uh, all of that stuff. Um, yeah. I'm started trying to get a feel. You know, we're in you know sort of what baseball season, the NBA playoffs. So they do have some larger scale gatherings of folks here, but not um, there hasn't been like a a central sporting event where, you know, masses of people got together and, and watched or two or something on, you know, I think right. if, if you've watched like the Super Bowl or stuff like that, where they cut to the, yeah. the various bases and things like that, I don't think we've had anything since, uh, in the March that when I got here, that would be akin to that. Yeah. 
thinking maybe the NBA, you know, you get the NBA finals, it'd be about it, and then the World Cup starts. Yeah, yeah, the World Cup is coming up, so that that should be a pretty big deal. Um, so uh, you were working as a VP at Deutsche Bank, um, mm-hmm. and your job is, as you mentioned before, being held. And what do you? Uh, when do you return? And um, you know, we presumably step right back into your position uh, that you had before. So. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure what back's going to be like. I, I'm due back in October. Um, my tour here in Afghanistan should end in late September. So there's it's a, there's a couple-week returning process as you come back through. Um, so I, sh- I think I'm due back sometime in, like, the first two weeks of October. Um, the – what was the second part of your question? I'm – Oh no! And do you do you expect the oh, uh, the the job to be uh, yeah. you know, to be held for you? Um, you know, I so legally uh, obligated to yeah. allow me to sort of apply for an equivalent position, right? So I'm, I can't lose my job. Um, the interesting thing with Deutsche Bank and Jacksonville is it's been growing at a just an astonishing rate. So I finished four years there in Afghanistan. So I think it would have been April. Uh, no, it was uh, earlier this month. It would have been four years there. And so they are were projecting of adding another potentially five or 600 positions. So I had a good a good spot I was in um, as a project manager, as a VP there, uh, where that team typically would be, as the site grew, their needs to support change and things like that typically evolved with it. Um, I've talked to my manager there a couple of times, but more so just on a friendly thing because it doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of benefit talking about jobs four months out, right? Right. So, uh, um, yeah, I expect to have something to come back into that's roughly equivalent. Um, it, it was kind of fortunate that four years in an equivalent position is one of those things where you start to look at how do I set myself up for that next level. Um, I did get promoted a couple of years ago, so that was good, but I know I have to. Um, stay moving and stay learning and growing so that that next in investment banking where I'm at, um, positionally, there's not, there's only two corporate titles left for me yeah. and that's rare air. So I know I have to really be in a good spot. So this break, um, I'm hoping will serve as a good point to when I come back, give me an opportunity to look and say, what, what makes sense for me professionally as I go forward to, you know, continue to, stretch myself and do, you know, that horizontal movement, um, since I'm not likely to get promoted director in absentia, right, um, to, to sort of go look and, and see what else is out there. But, um, you know, one of the neat things I think about what I'm doing now is this This is, a, is very much an operational job, right? So I have people doing daily tasks and running operations at um, remote locations that I'm responsible for, and I have to do all that stuff that goes with it. So I think ex- from an experience standpoint, this puts a lot of that together for me, right? So I've done change management. I've done line-level work. You know, I've done, like I told you, I did bartending. I've built generators. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. But in my career pathing, as I come back into it, I'm hopeful that this experience, if you take away the military aspect of it and look at it, sort of pure, like, uh, a professional parallel to it is something I hadn't really done before. Yeah. Um, and I hope, and it's something I feel like I can talk about because the things that I've done just in the couple of months that I've been here, have been, it's been pretty crazy. It's, it's uh, pretty intense, lots of things. And then the factors that go with it, you know, people shooting rockets at you, 
periodically is not something that happens in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, hopefully. Right. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, it's, it's neat. So when you get back, uh, when will you, if you wanted to, when would you be able to uh, be done with your commitment to the reserves? And I guess secondarily to that, um, you mentioned earlier that you may, uh, for financial reasons and just a number of different reasons, you may stay in as long as 20 years. But when could you get out and, and how long do you think you'll, you'll stay? Sure. So getting out is a, a different thing, right? So getting uh, coming off of active duty is, is the next phase of this, right? So I'm still a res- I'd still be a reservist. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, and if I stay in doing that, um, that that's my two weeks a year or more, and then uh, a weekend a month where to stay in good status with the, the Navy and the DOD. Um, so when I get back, I don't have, uh, I think formally, after I complete my sort of exit process, which is a couple of weeks, when I get back and I check into the base in Jacksonville, uh, I believe I'm sort of free to go about my life, if you will. Um, they give you a couple months from returning to what they call a drilling reservist status, um, where I have to go back in and report and um, take up uh, whatever position I have as an officer in the reserves. Um, I think it's a couple months. Not exactly sure on that one. Uh, and then, but I could, you know, I could technically start working professionally again as soon as, um, you know, the end of October, middle of October. It's kind of up to me. Um, I have on active duty here, I accrue leave time where they'll continue to pay me in the Navy. So I, I'm, it's a discussion to be had between my wife and I, but, you know, probably take a little bit of time to yeah. get back to life with the family before I, uh, jump back into, uh, whatever, you know, the professional work life is. Right. So, yeah, the, you know, the, the key thing here, right, I guess, is that I'll, uh, I'll shift from being an active duty naval officer back to reservist, which I was before. So it's sort of just returning back to that life, only having had this, um, I think it'll end up being about eight months. Uh, and, uh, and how soon after you get back, uh, could a, a, could another tour come up? I mean, I, I guess it's my understanding of the reserves. I mean, theoretically you could get called back at any time, but if things are running, uh, as expected, when would the next time maybe be? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, as a reservist, you're, uh, you know, if something really bad happened, you can always be called up right yeah. now. Typically, if you do a deployment like this, they give you a couple years where they call it dwell time. So you're, uh, unless you volunteer to go, they, they, they don't call you up unless there's a national emergency um, for two to three years. So it just depends. Um, now, there are some commands that you can go to where they have a, uh, a schedule they follow where if, you're, if you refer to the CBs um, or some of the other units, they deploy as a unit on a rotation. Um, if you join one of those units, you could end up getting called up again sooner. You'd have to waive. So I think officially within the Navy, I, I, I'm not obligated to go. I have to waive my dwell time um, when I, if I were going to try and go again. So effectively, I have to volunteer. Um, but I, you know, for me, that's not really planned. I think I'm, this will be good for a while until such time again that I have to go. 
Yeah. So t- taking everything into consideration, the, um, the the professional experience that you're gaining, the leadership experience, the opportunity to serve your country, but then um, you know putting yourself in harm's way and being being away from your from your family for extended periods of time is this uh, is this a decision that you're you're glad you're ma- that you're glad that you made or do you uh, do you still uh, question whether or not uh, it was the right call for you? You know, if I look at it, um, by and large, the things that happened after that have been tremendously positive. I've gotten to meet some really exceptional people, uh, and there's that's one of those things that the value is not sort of easily measured, right? Um, and then experience-wise, um, lead constant leadership challenges and opportunities, um, understanding what the expectations are of a military officer and a naval officer is a, a neat thing, uh, getting to... to I've had a couple of, uh, of times in my period of service where it, you have to be in that position to really kind of feel it the same way. Um, when I was getting ready to graduate officer, graduate officer school, there was a, they unveiled a huge flag for another um, uh, class that was graduating. And I was, uh, it was just everybody was out there in their whites, their, their Navy dress whites, sort of that classic uniform. And that was just really cool because the wind was blowing just right, so the flag was rippling. And there's a, you know, there's patriotic pride that goes along just in general for a lot of folks in America. But if you're wearing the uniform and that's going on, there's that other thing to it. Um, so there was that, um, and it's it's really, uh, if I line it up, you know, <clears throat> there's the, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the sacrifice from a family standpoint, but taken as a whole or looking at it, the the events have been really positive and. The trade-off of being away from my family for a short period of time is, is really tough. But, um, you know, I can say that from finishing the NBA and going through the process and the now almost four years in the Navy, um, the, the people and the experience and the opportunity has been amazing. Um, this is, you know, one of those challenges in life that, you know, I hope I can carry with me and, you know, um, pay it forward in a lot of ways. You know, one of the things I'm trying to do is professionally, I've been fortunate over the last couple of years after kind of mucking my way through the first part um, to have some really good opportunity. And so I'm, I'm really trying to take advantage of the chance where I have an influential position and talking to the younger, you know, younger's relative, right? I'm not, not walking around with a cane or anything, but I've got probably, you know, five to 10 years on most of the folks. Um, some of them are the same age as me, but um, different life experience. And so uh, sit down with them. There's a young lady here who's in her early 20s who's an Army specialist from Puerto Rico, wants to be a lawyer, right? So little things in talking to her about professionalism and, and how to present yourself. And she's already got a lot of that stuff, so I'm sure she'll be successful. But those those mentoring, those leadership opportunities like that, having had a, a long enough professional career and life experience to sort of find out what makes you tick, right? Those are the things I know that I really get that, um, what is it? Existential benefit out of like, yeah. that's the stuff, that's the stuff that I love, right? Like that, that, that ability to help people find what they want to do or give them some good advice and watch them take it and, and do something amazing with it. Those are the really neat things that I get to do. And I'm kind of all in that now. I mean, it's, um, to do, coaching and mentoring for people that are older than me that have the, you know, the police officers and teachers that I meant just because I have a different perspective and some things that I've learned, you know, I can do little things like say, Hey, present it this way. I need you to go do that. And one of the hardest things, somebody 
was used to doing the nuts and bolts of it was uh, the you just you give the order and you let them go do it and you, you don't tell them how to do it right that's sort of one of the classic management things you need to give them the order or tell them what you need done and then stand back and let them go do it and if they steer a little bit so be it but you can't you're not effective if you have to tell them you know do this and then do this and then do this that's you can't you'll never keep up uh, with it all so that being forced into that with the diverse sites in here is another level of that and so I'm getting lots of really neat I don't know psychological payback from all that stuff did that make sense you know what i'm saying like just uh, no absolutely no that's that that's perfect that's great i guess uh you know i want to conclude and know if there's any you know if there's any words of advice that you would uh would offer to any offer to anyone who may be in the position of either considering uh you know joining joining the military or the navy or even you know it it a crossroads or a professional crossroads in their life uh, where they, where they want to do something different, but they're not, uh, entirely sure, um, you know, what, what, what cues they should be looking for and listening to in life to direct them in one certain, in one direction or another, because it certainly sounds like you've made a number of those choices in your life. And you've been, uh, you've, you've been very confident that the choices have been the right ones and they all have all seemed to have gone, uh, you know, gone well for you. So, you know, what, what final words of advice would you offer to, to people in similar situations? Uh, I guess what I'd say is if you're, if you're interested in it, um, time isn't necessarily your friend, right? So they have a, I, I got in right at the upper age limit. So early thirties, I think it's 32. Um, maybe I would tell whoever it is, like go talk to the recruiters and find it out specifically. It's uh, time flies. Um, if if you're and I think the military and the, you know certainly there's exceptions to this but taken as a, a general experience is uh, in a lot of ways a meritocracy right so if you come in um, if you're if you've got a college degree or you've got the right experience you come as an officer um, and the expectations will be higher for you you'll have an opportunity to lead if it's something you want to do um, and you know certainly the benefits are, are pretty substantial. Um, there's not a lot of things that you can do for 20 years and walk away with a guaranteed retirement and, and all of the experience that builds up to that. Um, from, uh, even if you wanted to come in as an enlisted person, um, there's plenty of enlisted people. Like I mentioned while we've chatted that, you know, police officers, teachers, um, other professionals who just, um, a lot of them had served prior, uh, say active duty, left for a while, and then came back into the reserves, and then they um, just found something and stuck with it, and have been in for you know ten, fifteen, however many years. Uh, met some really amazing people. There's there's that the benefit of that. You're going to run into. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so while I was in my formal training to come over to Afghanistan, I met a young man who is a military intelligence Navy. He's an intelligence officer, um, and he's also the mayor of a town in Indiana. Um, I met uh, other people who are, you know, there's Navy captains, which is 06, which is, you know, right before Admiral, or we put a star on our general officer, um, who are senior vice presidents for insurance companies, and they've done you know, multiple deployments to Iraq and I think Afghanistan as well. So you just get exposed to some of the most exceptional people you can run into. And if you're somebody like me who tries to learn from everybody you meet and really cherishes those opportunities, um, 
I'm sure there's a better way, but this is the one that I picked. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, really, really fortunate with it. Um, the, the time off away from your family is hard. It's, it, you know, there's nothing, there's no way to paint that any differently. But, um, if you take the long view, you know, I, by the time I get home, I should have, uh, you know, there'll be some extra, we get some financial benefit from doing this. Um, in the long run, I'll have the post 9-11 GI Bill that I can transfer to my two kids. And I'll have, you know, added more uh, towards that eventual retirement should I be fortunate enough to stay in for 20 years. Yeah. So there's there's just a tremendous thing. And you know, I think one of the things I can say without any hesitation is the people that serve uh, our country voluntarily are just some of the finest people that I'm just, I'm amazed every day at how, how much they look out for each other, um, what they're willing to do, the general attitude and the conditions, you know, I've had to send some folks out on some, some forward missions where it's like, you know, they've got one hot meal a day and the rest is MREs and they're probably going to sleep in a tent on a cot. And they're like, yeah, I'll go do it. Sounds great. Yeah. Yes, sir. And it's, it, that's the answer every time. And that's amazing. You know, if you get the chance to lead people like that, it makes it easy. So that was a long way to say, um, absolutely just, it's a tremendous opportunity. You know, nothing's ever perfect, right? You know, I got to be away, but, um, really fortunate to have the opportunity. I try to stay humble with it and say like, it's a, it's just an amazing thing for me. Really, uh, really grateful to have the opportunity and, um, hope that I can continue to do a good job and, um, do justice to the position and you know come back home and see whatever's next yeah great well i mean i, I consider myself fortunate to be able to uh to just get 45 minutes of your time and to uh to be able to hear your story and uh i think everyone here in the united states should be grateful that uh grateful for people like yourself who do uh who do put themselves in harm's way leave their families voluntarily to uh to go serve and uh, that is not lost on anyone over here, and you should be commended for it. And I thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with me. No problem, Scott. Um, anytime. You know, if you want to, uh, I'll be here till what, end of September, like I said. So, you know, if we can, if we can coordinate again, and should you be interested, and happy to do it. Um, you know, I think uh, I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story a little bit, and uh, you know, it's just see what happens next great we'll keep doing good work i appreciate it man thanks so much sure scott thank you